Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Welcome back to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast. I am very excited to finally be recording again. I'm here in my uh, office in Kitabazi, Masaka, Uganda, in the beautiful continent of Africa, which it took a lot to get us here. Praise the Lord, we're here. We've been working hard since we've been here to get uh, a foundation set and settled and uh, to have a place that I can work from. Brother Keith Stensis, who is uh, a missionary that we're working with here, he's been here right around 25 years now. He's got a great foundation uh, established here, churches he's planted. Uh, he's got a place, essentially a place of operations, and he's been gracious enough to give me space here to work out of. I am so excited about what's coming and what we're going to be doing and things we're going to be participating in. And Stuff I'm going to try to make available to you on the World Wide Web, as well as the abundant work we need to do and will be doing here in Uganda. Uh, now, if you've been following along um, loosely, because I haven't, there hasn't been much activity on the podcast lately, you may have noticed some changes to the look and the theme and uh, just some updates we've been making to, to make it, uh, to kind of unify things. Uh, preparing for what's coming. We actually have a new segment coming. Uh, Brother Keith Stensis, who I just mentioned, is a uh, just a wealth of missions knowledge. He's been doing this for a long time. His father was a missionary and a pastor. Uh, Brother Keith essentially grew up on the mission field. He went home for a short time, went to Bible school, and then came right back and has been here in Uganda for 25 years now. Um, we're starting a new segment together where we're going to, we're going to, uh, once a month, sit down and we're going to hash out a certain aspect of missions. Um, that, that'll be our topic. It, it's a massive topic. So we have ample content and material available to us to try and uh, piece this together and put it together. But we'll sit down. It'll be a conversation format where he and I will will just hash out some aspect of, of uh, the, the complexities of missions. I'm really excited about that. I hope you'll pray about it. I hope you'll be. Uh, I hope you'll look forward to listening to it. And we're going to record the first one at the end of this month, so it'll be available, Lord willing, by by next month. 
and then he and I will sit down monthly and record these. So I hope you'll look forward to that. We're also going to pick up on some of the podcasts we left off from last year and uh, get those going as soon as I can. Uh, we still have some work to do here, but things are coming together nicely. Um, I can I can finally sit down and, and I'm not hindered from recording. Um, you know, the previous recordings were done wherever I could find space at a at a church or um, in our cabin on the road. I mean, we, we were all over the place, but the Lord's been good to us. We have a home here now. We're getting settled in Uganda. Um, now, speaking of that, you may have heard Uganda has gone back into a large scale lockdown. Uh, it's unfortunate, but that's the time we live in. That's where we are. That's what's happening. Uh, if you would pray for the country of Uganda, pray for us as we try and navigate these things. We, we of course, want to make sure we respect the requirements of the local government, but we must obey God rather than man. So this can put us in some, some awkward situations at times, but we're going to do our best to balance these things. And if you'll pray for us, pray that this government will allow us to continue to freely worship unhindered without trouble. We would greatly appreciate your help with those things. Um, now, with that out of the way, with, with that introduction and, and, and uh, with those announcements, if you will, <laughs> out of the way, we're getting back to our study in the book of Haggai. Now, we last left off with Judah uh, uh, back in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, let's read Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying. So Darius is king. Haggai's been raised up by God, and he's sent out to prophesy to the people. Now we set out uh, months ago, towards the middle and end of last year, to go through the historical background that got us to this point. Our last broadcast where we left off was Judah was back in Jerusalem. They had uh, built the altar. They reestablished the sacrifices and they were preparing to lay the foundation. And that's where we last left off. Um, Cyrus came in, Cyrus, the king of Persia, came in and, and took over Babylon and assumed control, they assumed ownership of the nation of Israel, of Judah. Uh, Judah was in captivity, and Cyrus made his decree, which we talked about previously in the previous broadcast, and uh, he made his decree to send them back to, to Jerusalem to rebuild that temple. And they started off strong, and then they didn't make it very far. And so we're going to talk about that in, in this series of lessons. Now, Zerubbabel and Joshua... Uh, that uh, led Judah back to Jerusalem, and then they began the rebuilding of that altar. Look at look at Ezra chapter three, and much of the narrative that leads us that leads us to Haggai is laid out in the book of Ezra. And I, I hope this will will do much for you to show you how interconnected these books are, and how important it is to run the cross references and to look these things up. We don't have to make assumptions about what happened. God gave us a lot of detail. Much of the Old Testament is interrelated and, and surrounds this certain time period in this era in Judah's history. Uh, you know, all the way from Jeremiah to Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, all these books are, are 
interrelated and, and, and tied together and lay out the narrative of what happened. Now, in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, and, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. And when the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, our last broadcast, we made much of this detail. When they came back to, to Jerusalem, and it was time to rebuild, and it was time to reestablish uh, the, the Jewish religion and, and the Jewish way of life, they did it in accord with the word of God. They went back to the law of Moses. They went back to the word of God. They didn't try to find some new thing or some new way. They didn't come up with some contemporary movement. They didn't try to uh, compensate for God's inability to reach man. They just did what God said in the law of Moses. It'd be good for our churches to do the same. God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our compensation. He doesn't need us to, to make up for where he's lacking. He needs you to go out and do what he said to do in this book. And it would, be, it would be a blessing if our churches would once again get a hold of that. Now, verse three, and they set the altar upon his basis for fear was upon them because the people of those countries and they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the feast of tabernacles as it is written, as it is written. I just thought I'd note that again. <laughs> they kept it as it is written. They didn't make up a whole new feast and try and do it a different way as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom as the duty of every day required. And afterward offered uh, the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and of every one that willingly offered a free will offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. So then they gave money to men uh, that were capable of laying this foundation and doing this type of work and did what they could to, to get this foundation laid. Now, here's something very interesting. And, and this is applicable to our, to our current day and age, where Israel has no temple. Jews have no means of worship in accord with the law of Moses. It's not possible, it's not even available to them. That, that temple, there sits a, a pagan mosque on that temple mount. The, the, there is no way for them to go and do what God said to do in accord with the law of Moses. They have no temple. So when you witness to a Jew today or you witness to someone that claims to be a Jew today, ask them, how are you doing what God said for you to do? It's not even available for you to try and do it. It's not, it's not an option for you. How, how are you worshiping in accord with the law of Moses today, right now? What, what do you do? How do you do it? And of course, they're not going to have a reasonable answer. They're going to give you this roundabout uh, made up series of, of religious requirements that they, they placed upon themselves. They know they can't worship the way God said to worship. So they just spiritualize it 
or they just make up some other way to do what they think God said to do. And that's not sufficient. That's not going to work. You have no high priest. You have no temple. You are physically incapable of serving God in accord with the law of Moses. So why don't you trust in Jesus Christ? Why don't you abandon the religion that you are not capable of maintaining, of participating in, and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Uh, that would be my encouragement to you. Now, soon after this, uh, the, the, the Jews lay out, they, 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 they make provision to make sure that this temple is built. And part of that is the foundation. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. And when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord. After the ordinance of David, king of Israel, and they sang together by chorus and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So that must have been an unbelievably exciting moment and, and an unbelievably exciting time in, in the nation of Israel. Here you're returning from captivity, a captivity that you brought upon yourself because of your disobedience to God. And, and you, you refuse to maintain his word the way he said. You wouldn't keep his Sabbaths, which he required. So he took you into captivity. Seventy years you live in a pagan land, incapable of worshiping the way God said. Now, currently, the majority of Israel and, 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 I, and by Israel, I mean descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not the name given to the, to the small area in the Middle East established by Great Britain and other, other, other Gentile powers. I mean Israel, as defined by God. Um, they're, they're, they're trapped in this Gentile land, incapable of worshiping the way God said. Then they get to come home and reestablish Jewish worship. They get to rebuild the temple, and God has made provision through Cyrus, through another Gentile king, to get this done. And the, the, the altar is established, worship is established, then the foundation is laid. What an exciting time it must have been. Now, here's where the excitement clashes with reality, and, and reality tends to damper, <laughs> put a damper on things, in ways that we wouldn't expect. Look at verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this, this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of weeping. Of the, of, of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off. So you've got this admixture of emotion here. You've got the, the, the younger crowd who are excited. You know, they're, they're, they're so excited about what, what they're participating in and what's being accomplished and what God is do, doing and, and how God is using them and what he's doing through them. And then you have the ancient men who've been around for a while and they know what the previous temple was like. They know how grand it was. They know how majestic it was. And 
now they're looking at this new temple and they're just looking at the foundation and they know just from the foundation, it's not the same. And it's important to note this because sin will cost you. Defiance of God will cost you. It will harm you. It will hurt you. What you could have had will never be if you allow sin to dominate in your life. And, and it may take, unfortunately, it may take years down the road before you realize the trouble you've caused yourself because you just refuse to put sin away. You thought it was okay to dabble with it. You thought it was okay to play with it. You, you thought it was, you know, God is so gracious and he's so merciful. It's okay. He's not going to mind. He minds. Not only does he mind, but he's also going to step back and allow you to play with sin all you want. But he's not going to take away the consequences and he's not going to take away the losses. You're going to be left with those. We are going to be left with those. If we think, if we come to the conclusion that dabbling and playing with sin is acceptable, and it's not, it's not, it's, it's, it's harmful, it's hurtful. Now, I, I want to I show you an interesting contrast, though, about how God views these things. And this notes the, <laughs> the grace and the mercy of God. This notes how wonderful our God is. And this aspect of God is often taken advantage of. Uh, we, we think God is just okay with everything we do, and he's not. But God is gracious. God is a, he's a wonderful God. Look, look, hold your place in Ezra, but look at Haggai. Let's go back to Haggai chapter 2. I want to I note a very interesting detail that God brings out here. And, and it really, it says a lot about who God is. And, and it says a lot about how God sees things and how we see things. And, and I'm not talking about just the negative aspect here. See, our minds often go to the negative. You know, God, God immediately sees our sin and he's going to deal with it. He's going to chasten you and he's going to deal with you. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of it. But there's another side to that. There's another side to God. He's not just some angry tyrant who, who's waiting to bash you in the head every time you do something wrong. But I want to be clear the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. The book of Jeremiah says, uh, uh, how, how is it worded? Um, uh, Thine own wickedness shall correct thee. Uh, that's, that is profound to me. God doesn't have to do anything. The, the natural order to this world, the way he set things up, your sin is going to hurt you. It's going to harm you. Your, your own sin will correct you because there are consequences to sin. There, is, there are consequences to righteousness, and there are consequences to sin. And if you dabble in one or the other, you're, gonna, you're going to eventually receive the due reward of, of either side. But I want you to see how God notes the way these people see this situation. The, the ancient men are weeping because they look at the current foundation of the new temple, and they're comparing it. To the, to the previous temple. Now look at Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. Haggai 2, I'm in Habakkuk. Let me get to Haggai. Haggai 2, verse 1. <clears throat> in the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, 
Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? <laughs> now, those are some strong words. That'd be hard to hear from God, but, but I want you to see it, it's, it's important that you look at the, at the details. God said, how do you see it? He didn't say how he sees it. He said, is it not in your eyes as nothing? And, and this is how man looks at things. You know, we, we, we assume that we must be receiving blessing from God because what we have is grand. It's vast. It's majestic. It's, it's of higher quality. That may not be the case. God said, do you see it as nothing? That's how you're looking at it. But that's not how God saw it. That's not, that's not necessarily God's response to the situation. Now, both realities are, are in play here. This new temple will never be what Solomon's temple was. You, you're not going to go back at this point. Your sin has cost you. But that's how you see it. Just as soon as you would get things right, just as soon as you would get in line again with God's word, uh, look at how God sees it. Look at how God, this is, and, and this should greatly encourage you. This should greatly bless your heart. This should greatly help you, and I hope that it does. Because look at verse 9. This is God's response. That's how man saw it. Man said, is it not in your eyes as nothing? But this is how God sees it. Verse 9, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this smaller, less grand, less majestic house, this temple, and I'm going to give it more glory than I did the last one. See, God can use what's left. He can even make it, he can even to some extent and, and in some way make it greater than, the, than, the, than what was there before. Now, it would be better if we didn't allow sin to put us in this situation. It would be better if God didn't have to, co have to come and have this conversation with you. Yes, what you have now is less than what you would have had if you just would have gotten rid of the sin that was in your life. But I can still use you. If you'll obey me, if you'll repent, if you'll do what I've asked, if you'll follow my instruction, I can still use you and I will still use you. But you got to get the sin out of your life. You, you've got to repent. You've got to be obedient. The, these things are not optional. God requires them. And just as soon as they got right, Haggai and Zechariah, which we're going to look at in a moment, began preaching and, uh, and, and as soon as they got things right, God came to them and said, I am with you, and I'm going to use this latter house. I'm going to give it more glory than I did the former house. That should encourage your heart. I don't know where you've been in life. I don't know what decisions you've made in your Christian life. I don't know what harm you've caused to yourself through your decisions. And I hate that that's a reality because personal agency is at play here, especially for a Christian. It is for everybody. But even more notably for a Christian, you are, you are more accountable through your decisions than the average person. And if you make good decisions, good godly decisions, you'll reap in righteousness. You make ungodly decisions, you're going to reap.
And at some point, at some point, you may get your life together. You may straighten these things out. You might make them right. But then you're going to be left there, sitting there, looking at what you could have had versus what you do have. And it didn't have to be that way. You chose to make it that way. You chose to, to, to go that route. And so, Lord willing, I, I hope this will encourage your heart that if you have messed up, you can make it right. But it's better if we just do what we can not to mess up in the first place. Now, I would love to never mess up. <laughs> and, and God's not asking you to never mess up. He is asking you to identify the sin in your life and remove it. Repent. Get rid of it. Let's remain obedient to God. Now, there's another dynamic to this I want us to look at. Go back to Ezra chapter 3, and let's read verse 12 again. Ezra chapter 3, and we're going to read verse 12 through uh, 13 again. Ezra 3 verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and the chief of the fathers, who were ancient men, that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. Now, <clears throat> what, what I want to talk to you about now, or what I want to, what I want to point out to you, uh, of course, we're talking about Judah here. We're talking about the temple. We're talking about, you know, uh, uh, Jewish matters. And, and we want to put it in its proper context. But these things are written for our learning and admonition. And what's happening here, this admixture is unbelievably relevant to the New Testament church. Uh, I'm afraid that many of our Bible-believing churches have gotten to a point where all they have left are the glory days what used to be. There's nothing happening there in many churches that is that is relevant to today. And so you had this admixture of, of ancient men in your churches, in our churches, who uh, they, they look back to how things used to be in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, you know, the, the, the great bus church movements and soul winning was so easy and you could go door knocking and people would open your door and uh, you can go out in the street and preach publicly and the majority of people would agree with you or people would get saved. And there were just so many incredible things happening, especially most notably in America, where our society was so permeated with, with biblical principle that it was not difficult to have a reasonable discussion with somebody about their soul. Well, now we're, we're so consumed with Marxism, socialism, uh, which which have now turned into these uh, uh, micro ideas of critical race theory and, and Black Lives Matter and, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, microaggressions and all this just all these ridiculous ideas that that are ungodly and that and that are were formulated to set you one against another. That's their purpose is to divide and, and then help help a group of people uh, who, who intend to take over conquer. That's their purpose. Now, in a society where these things have permeated and our intellectuals are, are overwhelmingly atheist and uh, believe in, in Darwinian evolution and, and don't believe for one second there is a God, it, it has created a society where 
hearts are hard. They're closed. It's, it's difficult to talk to somebody, to have a reasonable discussion about Jesus Christ. You, you're not even allowed to have discussions anymore. If you try and talk about something, you have a dissenting opinion than that of the orthodoxy of intellectuals and and the people who are trying to dominate and run your society. And you, if you don't agree with Hollywood and you don't agree with the music industry and you don't agree with uh, certain liberal politicians, you get shut down. You don't even get to have a conversation anymore. And so the ancient men look back to what it used to be and how great things used to be. But you still have this crowd of, of young people who just got saved, who are new to this. They don't know anything about how it used to be. And they're just excited to lay a foundation. They're excited to help rebuild the altar. They're excited to just participate. And, and sure, maybe it's not what it used to be. But don't stifle their zeal and their excitement because, because the direction you're heading in is not quite the direction that you used to be heading in. It may be that, that this young new zeal needs to be directed in a more godly and a more fundamental direction. There, there's no doubt about that. But don't, don't so stifle the excitement that it just shuts down any possible progress whatsoever. There has to be this proper balance. We need to set high and lofty godly goals. It is not a godly goal to be seeker friendly. That's not godly. It's not a godly goal to throw out good godly hymn music and exchange it for contemporary garbage. And if you like it, that's that's up to you. I mean, that's 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 your problem. <laughs> and I do I believe it is a problem because it's not it's not useful. It's it's not elevating people to a more godly standard. It's lowering the standard. And we don't want to do that. That's not the direction we want to go in. But at the same time, we have to have standards. But you don't want to be so overwhelming and, so, and, and, and create a form of bondage on people who are excited. They're just trying to figure this out. They're just happy to be back in Jerusalem. They're excited to lay the foundation they're excited that the altar is, is there and that the priests are, are back in their garments and that the, the uh, worship is reestablished. They're just excited to be doing something. And sure, it may not be what it used to be, but it is something. And, it, and, and not only is it something, but it's being developed according to what we've read in accord with the law of Moses. It's being established in accord with Scripture. And so you just got to be careful not to, to, to overwhelm the people that are young and that are zealous and that don't have knowledge of how it used to be. You got to find a way to help steer that young new zeal and, and to point it in a good godly direction and to help elevate them and to help elevate them and, and, and set high lofty godly goals, but help bring people along. If they fall short of your goals, don't, 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 don't wear them out over that. Give them some time, help them, teach them, instruct them, and, and I guarantee you, I believe that God would so bless that, that, that things would come along over time. You're not going to have what we had in the 40s and 50s today, right now. It's going to take time to build that. The few churches I know of that, st that are still just unbelievably sound and fundamental, they have not compromised in any way that I can think of. It took 20, 30 years to establish that type of work. It's not going to happen overnight. And so what, what tends to be happening is 
The churches who used to be there have so dissipated that they're just excited to bring some new contemporary, young, hip, whatever that means, preacher in or youth pastor so that he can bring in some lights and some showmanship and and we can try to dress this up in the hopes that it'll draw a crowd. It's going to draw the same crowd that Hollywood draws. It's going to draw the same crowd that expects entertainment, not godliness. So you're selling people a false bill of goods and you're deceiving yourself. You're going to end up, you're going to end up some liberal, contemporary, useless bridge or breeze or whatever. And that should not be the aim. That should not be the goal. They came back to Jerusalem. They established worship in accord with the word of God. That is essential if your aim is to please God. And it did. It pleased God. And it helped the people. But you had this admixture and you got to strike this balance between the new, young, up and coming who need to be directed, who need to be taught, and the ancient men who are bitter and frustrated because things aren't what they used to be. They need some direction also. And there's got to be a mediator somewhere in there who can handle both sides. And, and I, I hope that you'll strive in your church to, to strike this balance and to help the young people come up and maintain their zeal and excitement, but but help the, the elderly understand, the ancient men understand that we're not where we used to be, but we're trying to get back there and even better and even and to go even further. And, and so you got you to gotta strike that balance. Now, at this point in our narrative, the foundation is laid, the altar has been established, the altar is there, <clears throat> and the people are worshiping. We have the, the, uh, some rejoicing, some are mourning. And in the midst of all this excitement, and, and it is overall, it is excitement. It, it is hard for them to, to, re, to realize what they've lost. But at the same time, this is good. The altar is there. It's, it's, it's established in accord with the word of God. The foundation is there. We are moving in the right direction. This is exciting. And just as soon as they get started, it doesn't take long. And here comes trouble. And the adversaries of Judah show their face. Look at Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the, the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esar Haddon, king of Asser, which brought us up hither. That's important. That is notable. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, Ye have nothing to do with us to build the house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, hath commanded us. Now look at look also at um, look at verse 10. Another king is noted here. Uh, verse, verse 10, yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapper brought over and set in the cities of Samaria and the rest that are on this side the river and at such a time. Now, by the time we get to the New Testament, um, the, the, the area known as Samaria is full of these half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile uh, people who, 
have taken on some, you know, form of Jewish worship. Uh, they have taken on a little bit of the of, of, of uh, Jewish life and background and culture, but but the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Samaritans, they hate each other. They don't want anything to do with each other. That deep seated hatred starts here. Now, if you read through First and Second Kings, a lot takes place in Samaria. Uh, Elijah spends a lot of time there. Of course, King Ahab and his dealings there. But once you get to he- this point. Um, Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem. He destroyed the city. He destroyed the temple. He took with him anyone he was interested in, anyone that would be a help to the future of Babylon. He took them back to Babylon with him. Now he left behind certain poor of the Jews that he was not interested in. So those people were left there to maintain the land. Well, apparently not long after, Esar Haddon and a snapper came in And they brought Gentiles with them and they began to intermingle with these Jews that were left behind and the the Gentiles that came into the land. And they created this breed of half Jew, half Gentile people who who became known as the Samaritans. And so they approach Zerubbabel and Jeshua and they tell them, hey, we're we're here to worship. We we can coexist. (laughs) We have the same God. We can worship your God together. And Zerubbabel and Jeshua rightly said, no, no, you're not welcome in this. We are building this altar to our God. We have to build it in accord with his word. Now, here's the problem. And again, this is directly applicable to our churches today. And, and, the, and the cowardly approach that our churches today have to Christianity. It's so frustrating. Now, nobody wants trouble. But it's there. It's coming. Jesus Christ said, I came to bring a sword. I'm going to divide you. With division comes problems. It's just, it's going to happen. So this group of Samaritans come up. They want to work with Joshua and and Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple unto God. And they say, no, it's not going to happen. Now, what they could have done is said, you know, if we would let them join us, we could probably save ourselves some trouble. We, we, we could probably turn them from being adversaries and we could have this ecumenical coexist moment where we join hands and build the temple together. And that's not acceptable. Why? <laughs> Why is it not acceptable? Up to this point, what we've read is that they have been trying to do things in accord with the word of God. As soon as you bring in this other group who have their own religious ideas, have their own cultural background, when they get there, they're going to require you to give up ground, to to set aside certain requirements laid out by God in order to accommodate their culture, their religious ideas. I mean, they've said nice things about God, just like Roman Catholics might say some nice, nice things about God. It's not the same God. Islam, if you try and witness to a Muslim, he's going to tell you until you pin him down. He's going to tell you, oh, we we worship the same God. Really? (laughs) The same God. So you believe Jesus Christ is the son of God who died on the cross and was buried and rose again the third day. Immediately, they're going to say, oh, no, 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 no. We don't don't believe that. (laughs) It's not the same God. There might be a lot of the same names. You might have some nice things. You, You could be just like Nicodemus. Master, we know that thou art sent from God. 
Jesus said, you better be born again. I, I don't care about the niceties you have regarding me and my name. You better be born again. You must be born again. So this level of compromise that, that seemingly might save you from a certain amount of trouble down the road, if you just would allow them to come in and work with you, it, it, it's destructive overall. It's not going to go anywhere. In the end, it's going gonna, it's gonna to completely ruin everything God's trying to establish. God wants purity. He wants holiness. He wants righteousness. You get all that from his word. When you compromise on this book in order to accommodate people who hate God's word, what do you have? You have nothing. You have you have a you have a uh, uh, you know it's it's just an ecumenical movement. You have a lodge where you can hang out together, where where God can be left outside the door, and you can come in and you can coexist together and act and act all nice and, and treat each other wonderfully. But you're not doing anything for God. You're not doing anything to affect people or help people spiritually, not in a positive way. You are in a negative way, but not in a positive way. So they rightly said, no, we're, we're not, you're not allowed to come in here and be a part of this. That's their response. Now, the adversaries didn't stop there. They troubled them in the building. They tried to stop it, but the Jews pressed on. <clears throat> they kept going. That is until the government got involved. That is until the government said, you know, there's a virus. We're going to have to shut you down. We're doing this to protect you. And we're going to make you cease by force. Look at, look at Ezra 4, verse 6. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So they began writing letters. They couldn't cause them to stop by force, so they began writing a series of letters to the Persian kings. And this series of letters uh, caused them a lot of trouble, caused them a lot of problems. The first letter is sent to Ahasuerus. They send this letter to Ahasuerus, and they make an accusation against Jerusalem and against Judah. There is no response from Ahasuerus. He has nothing to say in, in response. So they, they didn't stop there. That, that wasn't satisfactory to them. They didn't get the answer they wanted there. So look at verse 7. And in the days of Artaxerxes wrote Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of their companions under Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the writing of the letter was written in the Syrian tongue and interpreted in the Syrian tongue. So they write this second letter to Artaxerxes. And they tell Artaxerxes, this is a rebellious and a bad city. And, and they kept referring not to what Judah is doing in their day, but what Judah, what Jerusalem did back in the day. And they tell our Xerxes, you know, this used to be a really bad place. They were rebellious. Uh, they, they, they caused insurrection. They, they caused hurt to the king's revenue. And, um, and, and we, we don't want that to happen to you. We want to do what we can to help prevent that from happening to you. So, our, our advice would be that you search the records, verify this is a rebellious and a bad city, and that you do not let them rebuild this temple and rebuild this altar. And so Artaxerxes looks into the matter, and Artaxerxes responds with force. He responds in a very serious way. Look at verse 17. 
verse 17. Then sent the king an answer unto Rehum, the chancellor, and to Shimshai, the scribe, and to the rest of their companions that dwell in Samaria, and unto the rest beyond the river, peace, and at such a time. The letter which he sent unto us hath been plainly read before me, and I commanded, and search hath been made, and it is found that this city of old time hath made insurrection against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made therein. There have been mighty kings also over Jerusalem, <clears throat> which have ruled over all countries beyond the river, and toll, tribute, and custom was paid unto them. Give ye now commandment to cause these men to cease, and that this city be not builded until another co commandment shall be given from me. Take heed now that ye fail not to do this. Why should damage grow to the herd of the kings? Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem under the Jews and made them to cease by force and power. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased under the second year of the reign of Darius the king of Persia. And that, that verse takes us right back to Haggai uh, chapter 1, verse 1, in the second year of Darius the king. So Artaxerxes completely shut the work down. The Jews didn't even try. They just allowed them. To, they just allowed the work to be stopped. And that's significant. We're going to see why that's significant because later, when they began working again, the adversaries came back again. But Judah refused to be stopped this time. They didn't care what the government said. They didn't care what these men tried to do. They they pressed on, and they built God's temple as they were instructed. Now things have been going well up to this point. They've been doing things in accord with the word of God. They, they are establishing the new temple. They have reestablished worship according to the word of God. And now they've let the government just shut them down. Does that sound familiar? How's your church hand, handled recent government interference? Now, we don't have time to look at it right now. But what I'm not telling you is to take up arms and go fight governments. You have no justification for that whatsoever in the word of God. What did Daniel do when the decree was signed? He went and he prayed just as he had before. What did those three Hebrew, he, those three Hebrew boys do when the, when, the, uh, when the music was played and everyone bowed down at the statue that that had been set up. They refused to bow down. They didn't fight. They didn't take up arms. They didn't form a militia. They just continued to do what God said to do. And that's where another place, that's another area where our churches have gotten way off track. We're joining militias. We're fighting political battles. We're, we're sending money to to politicians and we're listening to Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and all these men who have nothing to do with the word of God. It's another area of compromise. God said, when the government comes in and they tell you, you cannot worship in accord with my word, you do it anyways. Now you're subject to that government. 
And if that government decides to throw you in jail or they decide to fine you or they decide to, to deal harshly with you, God gave them that power. That's Romans 13. You're subject to that power. But you can't be obedient both to God and to the government all the time. You're going to have to at some point choose one over the other. And just like Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than man. They told Peter, do not preach in the name of Jesus Christ again. And he said, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to cause harm to you. I'm going to continue to pray for you. And I'm going to hope that you'll leave me alone and allow me to peaceably worship the way that my God prescribed that I am required to worship. But if you won't allow me, we're going to do it anyways. We have to do it anyways. We have to be obedient to God. I do not have to be obedient to man when man, when man, okay, obey every ordinance of man until that ordinance of man conflicts with the word of God. Now you've got to obey God. Now, this is not an excuse not to pay taxes and not to do uh, some of the things that you just don't like to do. When the government says no church, no worship, no singing praises to God, the same God who commanded repeatedly that you sing praises unto him. I'm sorry. We have to do it. We're going to do it. We would prefer to do it with your cooperation. We would prefer to do it in such a way that, that, that the government is not upset, that they're not hindered because they yield not the sword in vain. <laughs> but when those paths cross, we, we've got to do it. We've got to be obedient to God, and we're going to be obedient to God. It's a requirement. Now, here they are. Their adversaries have caused trouble. Their adversaries have written letters to the government, and the government wrote back, shut it down. And Judah allowed themselves to be shut down. You have no idea how God would have helped them how God would have come along beside them, as we're going to read of in Haggai. God, as soon as they got right with God and they started doing what God said, God blessed their work. God, God, in a sense, calls the government. We're going to see, we're going to look at in depth, not, not in this lesson, not in this, this study, but in, in, in one of the next ones, we're going to look in depth at the response of Darius the king, which was incredible. God blessed them when they were obedient and did what he said. And this is where we get things backwards. We want God to make the government leave us alone, and then we'll go be obedient. God said, be obedient, and then maybe I will cause the government to leave you alone. Now, he didn't say he would, but that is the pattern if he does. The pattern is that God comes along and causes the people who are hindering his work to get out of the way because his people were already being obedient. He didn't get trouble out of the way so that then his people would become obedient. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. We have to be obedient. We've got to serve God. We've got to do what he says. We've got to do it the right way. It might mean we're going to have some trouble until the world comes along and, and makes things right. And that doesn't happen too often. Now, <clears throat> finally, a third letter was sent. Um. A third letter was sent, but after God raised up 
Haggai and Zechariah. Now, Haggai is the first prophet to prophesy after Judah returns from Babylonian captivity. Zechariah is the second prophet to prophesy after Judah returns from Babylonian captivity. Look at Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. Then the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them, then rose up, okay? Haggai and Zechariah, they come and they start prophesying, this is what God says about what you're doing and the way you're living. Here's their response. Verse two, then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehoshadak, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. They didn't check with the government to see if it was okay. They didn't, they didn't check with their adversaries to see if they were going to bother them. They got Haggai, Zechariah came along and said, God's not happy with what you're doing and the way you're living. You need to repent. They repented and got to work. Praise the Lord. And the temple got built as a result. Look at, look at Haggai chapter 1. Hold your place in Ezra if you're following along. Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1, and we're going we're gonna to tie all this right back together. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, unto Zerubbabel, the son of Jeshua. Look at Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, uh, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying. So there you go. There, there's... That this takes us right back to where our study began in Haggai 1.1. This is how we got here. It's how we got to this point. And so they begin to rebuild. And, and as we already talked about, if you're going to do something for God, guess what's going to happen? Immediately, trouble's going to come along. Now, when they were building their own houses and they had left the house of God to go to waste, nobody cared. I mean, they built some nice houses, sealed houses in this day. Nobody cared. Nobody bothered them. But as soon as they start building the house of God, immediately trouble comes along. Look at, um, look at Ezra 5, verse 3. At the same time came to them Tatnai, governor this side of the river, and uh, Shethar Bosnai and their companions, and said thus unto them, Who hath commanded you to build this house and to make up this wall? Then said we unto them after this manner, what are the names of the men that make this building? But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, and they could not, they could not cause them to cease till the matter came to Darius, and then they returned answer by letter concerning this matter. So they sent a third letter to Darius the king. Darius's response is incredible, and we're going to look at it in detail. What, what a response. It's unbelievable. It's wonderful. But you'll have to come back next time to hear me talk about it. They send this letter, this final letter, and it goes to Darius the king. And at the same time, they try and uh, force them to stop. They try and force the work to come to an end. And they could not. They would not be stopped. Because of proper preaching from the word of God and proper response from the word of God, God got involved in it 
and blessed the work and they could not be stopped. What would have happened if our churches responded the exact same way in our current climate? We don't know because most of them didn't respond that way. The few that did, God blessed. What would they have done in your church? Now, I'm not criticizing the unbelievably difficult uh, 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 decisions that pastors had to make this past year. I thank God I didn't have to be the one making those decisions. But I am required to note what the word of God says. And that causes me to speculate maybe what could have been if we had responded the same way. And, and my hope is that reviewing this with you will cause the same words of this same prophet to stir up your church and to get back to work in the hopes that maybe God will come along with you, come along beside you, and cause whatever is ailing you and troubling you and, and causing harm to your ministry to fall away, or at least give you the strength to push through it in such a way that you cannot be stopped. That's my hope. If I can help you in any way regarding those things, please let me know. You can contact me on, on the internet. I won't be hard to find. You can search me out if you're interested. So this concludes our historical background. Now we're into the book of Haggai, but we are going to make a few more stops before we get into the verse by verse, word by word, line by line, precept upon precept through the actual book itself, starting with the next recording we're going to look at some biographical sketches. We're going to look at, look at Darius the king, Zerubbabel the governor of Judah, Joshua the high priest, and Haggai the prophet. We want to find out who these characters are because they are dominant in the, in the, uh, in the narrative that's in the book of Haggai. We're going to find out who they are and how they came to be where they are. As the Bible uh, gives a lot of detail about, about some of them. And uh, we'll look at those. And then we'll get into a verse-by-verse -verse detailed look at the book of Haggai. I hope you'll come along for the ride. I hope you've enjoyed this study. I hope it's a help to you and your family and your church and, and your ministry and anything, anyone that you'd be willing to send this to and have take a look at it. I hope it'll be a blessing and a help to them. Hope it encourages and strengthens and builds people up. That's my aim. That's my goal. Lord willing, as long as God allows me to be here, I want to do all that I can to try and help people move closer to God and more in line with his word. Lord willing, that is, that is what I will spend the rest of my life doing. I thank you for your prayer. Thank you for your help. Thank you for coming along. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.